but I would hope that, you know, someone listening to this podcast won't say, oh, it's another book on the Trinity. I'm not even going to try because it's challenging. You know, fine, don't try my book. But I do think we can have a degree more understanding of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit from where we are now. And that goes for me too. I have more to learn. Um, and so I would hope that, you know, this book will serve some people to know God more fully and then to be able to respond in clearer worship as a result. And so if you're listening, I hope you'll pick up my book, you'll pick up somebody else's book, but that you won't just give up on understanding God more completely. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Logos Bible Software, bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we are on a book club episode. We have Glenn Butner Jr. on, and he's going to be talking about his book he wrote, published by Baker Academic, Trinitarian Dogmatics, Exploring the Grammar of the Christian Doctrine of God. So we'll have this conversation here in a moment. As always, some show note reminders. If you go to our show notes, you'll see a link to Baker Academic. Please click that. We've done a lot of episodes from Baker. They've graciously given us a lot of books and set us up with some interviews. Um, and so you can check out uh, what they have in their online store, especially this book on Trinitarian Dogmatics we'll talk about today. Uh, you also find a link to find the closest Reformed denominations near you. So you click that link and you can type in your zip code. And whether you're looking for the uh, PCA, OPC, URC, or any others, uh, you'll find the closest ones to your zip code. Zip code. And then um, there's also some information to contact Peter. He's church planting as we speak in Santa Ana, California, which is Orange County, California. Uh, so you can contact him for questions. You can also find out how to contact Peter or myself directly if you ever want to talk about anything on our show um, that you've heard or want to hear or any questions. Uh, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at guiltgracepod, and you can find us on Instagram, the same handle, at guiltgracepod. So connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you are a bridge builder, which means you financially support our show, we can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. If you're not, that's okay. Uh, we still love you. Um, and we appreciate that you're listening anyway. But if you click that Patreon link in our show notes, you can see the different levels of uh, donation options. And this is, of course, um, not to replace or cut in line of donating to your uh, local church that you're a member of. That is the most important thing. So only if you have a few bucks left over uh, each month, we'd love to, um, we'd be more than happy to um, get that donation from you. But if not, that's totally okay. So uh, other than that, uh, you can also find us on YouTube. So we are primarily a podcast show. So you probably are listening to us in the audio version right now as we speak, excuse the pun, but if you want to see us in person and just see this conversation as it's recorded, you can go onto YouTube 
and uh, watch it or put it on play and have it on in the background, whatever you please, whatever pleases you. So, um, and then also about halfway through this show, you'll get here some sponsors that we have that are bridge builders. Logos Bible Software is obviously our main sponsor right now. And uh, you'll see here some words from some of our other sponsors. And so uh, if I haven't forgotten anything else, I'll let Peter further introduce Glenn Butner. Yeah, we have Dr. Glenn Butner. Uh, he's assistant professor of theology and Christian ministry at Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas, where he also directs the honors program. He's also the author of The Son Who Learned Obedience, which is a theological case against the eternal submission of the Son. It's a pleasure having you on, Dr. Bunner. It's great being here. Thanks for inviting me to be on your show. Absolutely. Yeah. How's it? Um, so this is not a question you were expecting, nor was it anything that I wrote down. How's it feel to have roughly the same headset as Nick does? <laughs> Usually, either people use their computer or they have a, a fancy mic. I'm used to using my computer, but it's very unusual. We have somebody who looks like Nick when he puts on his headset. Yeah, well, I'm trying to tune out background noise. I'm at wow. my in-laws, as I told you, and there are all sorts of little kids running around. And so I'm hoping that you won't hear screaming in the background. But if you do, uh, it's just kids having fun, nothing scary or terrifying like that. But it was nice <laughs> yeah. to also see that I, I'm stylish and I'm fitting in here among the that's reformed. Right. So yep. <laughs> um, it works out well. Yeah, that's good. Amen, brother. I never realized that I would be starting a, a trendy thing in the reformed world. I feel extremely flattered. Yeah, I don't know if we call that trendy, but yeah, we'll, we'll call it something. <laughs> After cage stage, you move into headset stage. Oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> exactly, Come on, Peter, yeah. keep keep up, that's, Peter. That's, yeah, I, I, no, worse. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want a real microphone. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. So, if you can tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and then what your current work looks like. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I'm originally from North Carolina, it's, uh, where I'm recording from right now. Um, came to faith late in high school and uh, went off to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill wanting to be a lawyer. Um, my first religion class really, or maybe it was my second, was under a guy named Bart Ehrman. I, I was famous. wondering if you took a class from him. Yep. 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 So under Bart Ehrman, famous critic of Christianity in the New Testament. And there were about 400 people in there uh, in the class. And I knew over 20 that were uh, doubting their faith as a result. Okay. And I was super nerdy. So as a freshman in college, I'd already read tons of different books on theology, only being a Christian for a couple of years. And I didn't know enough to, you know, debate Professor Ehrman, but I did know enough to know he was only telling part of the story. So started, um, you know, having breakout groups for students struggling with their faith, loved it, realized that I think I'm gifted in teaching and felt called to teaching. And so just stayed in school forever. Um, you know, a decade later, finally got that teaching job I'd hoped for in Sterling, Kansas, um, where I love it. I get to teach a wide range of classes, but in terms of writing, I mostly do so far Trinitarian theology and then some stuff in social ethics. Hmm. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that is, that's cool. And just, so I have, uh, an idea because I wonder if you, um, overlap, when did you start teaching at Sterling? So 2016, there's who is the person, you know, David Briones. I've heard stories of Briones, but okay. I, I haven't met him personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He Everybody went, liked yeah. him at Sterling. Yeah. He started, no, he started at Biola, which is my alma mater. Then went to Sterling, I think. And then went for Sterling, went to Reformation Bible college. And now is at Westminster Philly. So I was wondering yeah, if you knew him at all, but know him by yeah. name, maybe not by sight. 
Nope. And, He's spoken of well. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Yeah. <laughs> and we've had Michael Kruger on the show before. And we've read a lot of his works and he's had Bart Ehrman. Yep. Yeah. He's had Bart Ehrman. As Probably a, a little older than you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he was uh, as an undergrad at USC yeah. or uh, UNC. UNC uh, yeah. He had Bart Ehrman. And um, hmm. so that's another kind of connection there. I didn't realize that overlap. Yep. yep. So there's yeah. a couple of us that made it through there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean. Yeah. It sounds like either you come out doubting your faith or you come out stronger in your faith. So it's, yeah. Good to know, yeah. yeah, that you came Still up. Still one of my favorite classes, even though I disagreed with a lot. It totally, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a brilliant scholar, but he's he's got some, got, like you said, he's got some holes, and he kind of plays the holes more than you more than you think he should. Well, uh, and he sharpens your apologetics so much yes. more because you know the best, the argument that the source of the best argument against what we believe, and then you can really sharpen your apologetics from there. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about this book, Trinitarian Dogmatics, and you've, you've written on the son and his obedience, so Jesus and his obedience. So this is not like, unlike what you've written before necessarily. So how did, how did this book come to life? Uh, what was the process like? Why did you want to write this? Uh, yeah. and yeah, maybe talk about that process. Sure. So, uh, it's probably the convergence of a couple of different sources. One, um, so my dissertation is theological analysis of uh, experimental and behavioral economics. So not the type of thing that, you know, it plays well in a dissertation, but it doesn't serve the church, at least in the yeah. format it was written in. It, yeah. I didn't think it would necessarily get me a job. It got me into a PhD program. And so I wanted a secondary specialization um, that would serve the church more, that would, you know, get me a job and that I was just interested in. And yeah. so I decided to pick the Trinity and so since I got into um, really beginning in seminary, I was looking at it some, but especially in my doctoral program, I was really trying to develop my understanding of the Trinity. Um, so then I get my teaching job about six years ago at Sterling College. And the nice thing about the small school, we have a very robust curriculum, but very few faculty. So hmm. I'm getting to teach two semesters of historical theology, two semesters of systematic theology, another of contemporary Christian thought. Um, I've couple of New Testament, Old Testament courses, though less often there. And so I'm touching on the Trinity in all these different ways. Um, But I realized that sort of teaching in such a manner, when I'm covering, say, the doctrine of simplicity, that God is not composed of parts, um, I tend to do that in a historical theology class and explain why philosophically in a Greco-Roman context, Christians or context, Christians might hold to this doctrine. But I'm not doing it in, you know, a course where I'm looking at biblical studies necessarily. And so that makes it seem like the doctrine isn't really connected with scripture, which, of course, is going to be pretty concerning. Mm -hmm. So I decided to write a book that would sort of weave together these different approaches to studying the Trinity, um, because I was looking around and couldn't find the book that I wanted that did that in the way that I would want to. Um, So I pitched it to a few publishers and Baker graciously picked it up. And so. Uh, it comes out to the world on July 19th, although I'm seeing a few early copies already arriving in the mail. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, we'll see if, if it's a service to the church or not. I hope so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. I'm, I'm sure it will be. And this is kind of like what Nick was saying pre-recording. It's, it's kind of in a, I wouldn't say a renaissance, but maybe in the last few years, I'll put a pitch it like five or so years ago that it really started. This is, it's kind of, there's this like earnestness to get more Trinitarian work out there, more like theology proper work out there maybe not so much on your books necessarily, but like, do you know, or maybe have a 
somewhat of a finger on the beat. Like why, like why so much on the Trinity lately? Um, Cause we knew this is a heresy 1700 years ago. Yeah. Um, but people are like, well, we, do we have a heresy right now? Like, are we kind of fighting something right now? We'll have a kind of a question later on this, but um, why do you think so much has been coming out on this lately? Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably a number of things. Um, so there was, you could call it a resurgence, I guess, but it had a lot of novelty to it um, in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the first half of the century really driven by Karl Barth and a few others. Right. Uh, the second half tended a lot towards social Trinitarianism, um, a lot of applying this to social contexts and thinking of the Trinity as a model for our you know, community in different ways. Um, lots of really interesting stuff. Unfortunately, a lot of it I don't think really works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for a period of time, maybe, um, you know, more confessional churches weren't engaging this as much, maybe more evangelicals weren't engaging it as much. And so partly, I think, as sort of some of those more traditional groups have become exposed to them, they've written a lot more mm-hmm. trying to steer away from those sorts of directions. Um, at the same time, you know, my first book actually involved a big Trinitarian conflict on whether the son eternally submits to the father. Yep. Um, and that sort of popularized debates on the Trinity for a certain subset of evangelicals. Um, And that really raised a whole bunch of questions and suddenly sort of cast suspicion on some formerly well-trusted sources of Trinitarian theology. So once those aren't trusted, what book do you turn to? You know, it's a nice opportunity, um, which then makes people who want to make money off of books, you know, they're not just only making money, but publishers need to make money. Suddenly they have a market (laughs) And it might be there have been a lot of good books proposed that were just turned down and all of a sudden, you know, Baker can have three come out over three months because yeah. people want to buy them. So, yeah. Yeah. and I just happen to be at the right time at the right, you know, right place <laughs> yeah. at the right time. And so yeah. Yeah. I get that deal and that opportunity, you know, God's right. problem. Yeah, yeah. I think three books, the last I checked, three books, either on the Trinity explicitly or generally speaking over the last month, just from Baker alone, yeah. not to mention other publishers. And almost every publisher is doing it right now. So it's really exciting. Yeah. In our last, I'd say, last three or four conversations on book clubs seem to have been about yeah. the Trinity, which is great. If I if I may just kind of uh, do a sub-question uh, cut in here, just to kind of define some terms, I think it's, I think even explaining the Trinity is a big task. And a lot of people struggle with that, obviously. And some people even see, unfortunately, some Christians see that because it's hard to understand or hard to explain that it's optional to believe in. And, um, and then how you can explain what dogmatics means. So just going to the title of your book, what does it mean to say Trinitarian dogmatics? Sure. Good question. Um, I'll start with dogmatics. It's a bit easier. Um, <laughs> so in the intro, I draw on the definition of Emil Bruner. So uh, sort of a more recent definition, but I don't think it deviates in a major way from earlier understandings. But um, dogmatics would refer to an approach that is designed um, to systematically think about scripture. So um, it's not like a John's theology of the Trinity. It's um, drawing themes from across the canon and organizing them in a logical manner uh, with two contexts in mind. The first is a polemical one. Dogmatics is always done in dialogue with different heresies and different, you know, movements that I wouldn't want to call a heresy necessarily, but that might not be the ideal. Um, And the second context being the classroom. Um, So this is a book that I'm hoping will serve the classroom, but it will also kind of carve out a space of what I personally think is, 
you know, safe Trinitarian beliefs, what I think might be more questionable, but not, you know, heretical or super problematic, and then certain areas that are not acceptable. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do in a dogmatic text. Um, and so I do that in terms of the Trinity um, by going through eight chapters, each one discussing a major locus or major dimension of the doctrine of the Trinity. So um, if I had to define the Trinity, um, it would go something like this, um, but my full definition would then be this whole book. <laughs> um, but it's the idea that their um, Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence or consubstantial, which basically means they have all the same attributes and they are all worthy of worship as God only is, but they're eternally distinguished by processions. So the Father begets the Son and the Father spirates the Spirit. And there's this whole question of how does the Son and the Spirit relate? Um, because the essence is simple, not composed of parts, that process of the processions doesn't mean there are three gods. There's only one God because you can't divide God into different things. God's not a thing in the first place, but you do still have distinct persons. Um, but a person isn't what we mean in terms of a center of consciousness. Um, the persons indwell each other perfectly, which is sort of a metaphorical um, idea, perichoresis, that one is in the other and each one moves through the others. And because of this, um, everything that they do, all actions toward creation, they do inseparably with the exception of the missions. So the son does come in a unique way, taking on flesh, father and spirit don't. The spirit also comes in a unique way in the mission. And as a result of that, when we have communion with God, we must have a threefold structure to this where we know father, son, and Holy Spirit. So it's still a bit of a beastly definition of the Trinity, but I think those eight parts, I gave you about a sentence on each one, kind of tells us what we mean by the doctrine. Um, putting it really simply, God is one being eternally existing as three persons, but that leaves a whole lot out of it. So yeah. oh, the book <laughs> yeah. basically walks you through those eight things with that teaching and polemical context in mind. So now you've got the cliff notes of Trinitarian dogmatics. It's <laughs> so much better than saying it's like an egg. <laughs> <laughs> or the process of water or yeah, the, yeah, sun, the three leaf clover. One of those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that's actually, it's a good, um, your, your previous statement too, and this as well, kind of a good way to, to approach this question. Like you said, <clears throat> this book is not, it's not really strictly a book on, okay, let's exegete the Bible. What does the Bible say about this or just that? Nor is it like, okay, how is history, how is the history of the church understood, uh, understood the Trinity? Um, nor like, what's the theology of the Trinity? But it's like you said, it's kind of a kind of a blending of all these three. <clears throat> so can you describe your approach in this book and, and how these three things, and I'm sure there's more, you talk about the theologians, some of the, we may not know as it relates to the Trinity, um, why all of these things as part of this book versus just one or just the other? Yeah, good question. Um, again, I think partly that arises from the teaching context, um, but I think it also comes partly from the polemical context. So uh, as I said in the classroom, I realized that in historical theology, when I teach that class, I'm spending so much time making sure my undergraduate students understand, uh, you know, Athanasius is on the incarnation um, or Gregory of Nyssa's Ad Ablabius, where he talks about how we can't say there are three gods, even though there are three persons, three divine persons. Um, I spend so much time trying to help them understand the Greco-Roman context that we don't really get into any of the exegesis that the fathers are doing there. Um, and we don't even get into any exegesis in any other eras. And so you can wind up thinking that the Trinity was something kind of interesting, kind of weird that people did in the 400s, and 300s, and we can kind of move on. 
Um, so what I end up doing is, you know, in one chapter on say consubstantiality, I'll start with debates that biblical scholars today are having over um, is Jesus viewed as divine in these New Testament texts. And some people say in a Jewish context, that's not what uh, these texts would have meant. But I'm convinced by scholars like Larry Hurtado that um, because he is reverenced in a cultic context, you know, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, for example, that that's a sign of divinity there. But that immediately raises question, what does it mean to say that Father, Son, and Spirit are divine in one God? So then I have to pivot because biblical studies has raised that question, and I have to explore some ways people have answered that. So I look at Basil of Caesarea, and I look at Thomas Aquinas, and I look at a number of scholars writing in Muslim contexts. So um, Abu Raita Al-Takriti, for example, or um, Imad Shahade more recently, um, to sort of see some different philosophical ways people have approached this. And then from that combination of philosophy and historical theology and biblical studies, I try and condense everything down to a nice summary of here's what we mean by consubstantiality and here are the questions that we still don't have answered and so that's kind of the approach through each of these eight sections is um, my goal is just to get the reader to understand as clearly as i'm able what these ideas are and then i just address whatever biblical studies and philosophy and historical theology and contemporary thought actually helps me to try and do that hmm. um, so that makes kind of an eclectic book sometimes i'm drawing on the famous figures of Augustine. Sometimes I'm pulling on something really obscure that I just happen to find helpful. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, I think it's a helpful way of of engaging um, with the Trinity and not just and not saying one thing is 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 insufficient, but it's. I think it's it's helpful to have all these things um, speaking into this to say it's it like you said it's not just a thing that we thought hard about in the 300s and 400s and then kind of forgot about for 1500 years, 1600 years. Mm -hmm. Nor is it something that like isn't theologically or exegetically biblically based, um, but it has all of these kind of characteristics with it to help us construct this doctrine. Um, yeah. Which <clears throat> brings me to my, my next question. Um, and, and it's stated in your introduction, it's also stated on the, on the Baker website. Um, and specifically, and I thought it was interesting, you don't, you don't build this really on kind of like the easy quote unquote Trinitarian text, the ones that are like really explicit, although like you don't, you don't shy away from those, obviously, but that's not like the, uh, not like the crux of your argument necessarily. Um, so you look at various aspects of this diamond. Uh, so how, how is what you're doing in this book? Maybe, maybe different from not better or less than, but different from other approaches to the Trinity, maybe that have come out recently or come out historically. Sure. Um, I'm sort of the consummate generalist. I am interested in too many things to specialize in anything enough. Um, so even as I say, I, I added a second specialization in the Trinity. I'm also right now reading in Christology and you know, I'm, I'm writing in uh, economic ethics again and immigration ethics. And so I'm all over the place, which means if you want a really good book on Aquinas and the Trinity or Augustine and the Trinity or Athanasius and the Trinity, you don't want to read my book. Um, <laughs> you know, there are lots of people out there that have done great books. So Khaled Anatolios on yep. Athanasius, lots of great material out there. Um, and so I don't see the need as much for someone to do another Athanasius book. Not that there's not more to learn, yeah. um, but we're not really missing one like that. Um, I've always been struck and, you know, partly, I guess we could go into this, but partly my educational history has been really eclectic. I've been influenced by Methodists and the Eastern Orthodox, and I went to a Catholic mm -hmm. school and I'm personally, you know, more reforms and evangelical. 
but I've seen beauty and God working in all parts of his body. Yep. Uh, first Corinthians 12. Um, and I find it helpful to be able to draw on the best summaries of Athanasius and Aquinas and mm -hmm. Augustine and biblical studies. Um, and that gives a more broad, I guess, understanding of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And that maybe fills in gaps. We all have them. I have them. But uh, things that maybe Aquinas didn't adequately address, maybe somebody in the 1700s did. Um, and so one thing I hope to do, um, besides having just the logical ordering of these eight ideas, which is a little different than most texts, which tend to proceed just chronologically, um, at least most recent texts, I'm hoping to bring a lot of dialogue partners into the conversation that maybe aren't in those standard texts. Assuming that, you know, in a seminary context, maybe a lot of students will have already taken a good church mm. history class and will already know Augustine well, um, but maybe they don't know, um, you know, the medieval mystics, for example, or maybe they don't know um, James Henry Owino Combo, um, you know, contemporary African theologian, um, but they could benefit from reading them. Yeah, that's helpful. So something you said um, struck me, and I think. Uh, our listeners should should hear this. And you, you said your your book is kind of based off a of logical ordering versus a chronological order. Can you, can you go into that and, and why it's structured the way that it is? Sure. Um, so as I look at many of my favorite books that I'd want to use um, in a graduate level class on the Trinity, which unfortunately I don't get to teach. So I'm kind of designing my dream textbook for a class I don't teach <laughs> yeah. since I teach yeah. undergrads. But uh, a lot of them are structured in a sequential order. So they you know, they start with the Bible, then they move into early Christians and then the Nicene debates and then the Middle Ages and the Reformation and modern thought. And then they kind of summarize. Mm -hmm. And there's some variation in there. Um, and that's really helpful, to be honest, because then you understand how we got where we are yeah. and the context that major figures were writing in. Um, but any method is going to have a weak point. And the weak point there is um, because you cover scripture early on and you cover the pro-Nicenes, you know, relatively early on in the book, when you get to later objections to the Trinity, um, you know, the Socinians maybe in the 1700s, um, you may not have time just because of the word limit on your book to go back to the scripture again. Um, or if you decide to introduce, you know, eternal generation uh, with origin of Alexandria, you know, and would that be the third century? Um, you may not be able to address questions in the 1900s about whether this is an idea that makes sense. Or you may not be able to look at, you know, Tourette the reform scholastic and how he deals with uh, eternal generation. Um, and so if you order it with what I think are the eight most important ideas for the doctrine of the Trinity, and you're focusing on an idea, you can kind of bounce around from contemporary biblical studies to Theophylact of Ocrid, the Byzantine interpreter, to you know, second century apologist, Athenagoras, to Martin Luther. Um, not that I follow that pattern in any specific book. I'm just pulling random names, but that's sort of random structuring. But you're actually drawing on the people that, you know, best make the case for this idea and most helpfully clarify it. And if you were presenting it in chronological order, you couldn't do that because you'd be constrained by that narrative. Um, so this approach has its weaknesses because I drop a name in there and you're like, who is this? Where did they come from? What are they doing? And yeah. I just don't have time to answer that. But yeah. I think it has the strengths in terms of just trying to distill the important ideas so that the reader can get a deeper understanding of what Christians have confessed for centuries. 
Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what footnotes are for too. Yeah. <laughs> that's yep. Yeah. No, for those of us who actually look at the footnotes, <laughs> I, I would love I to pull things. people like, do you actually look at the foot? Cause I've heard how much time goes into the footnote section. I was like, I wonder if we could do a Twitter poll on, do you actually look at the footnotes or do you just kind of like, Oh, that's interesting. And then move on with your life. Yeah. I don't expect people to read most of them, but if somebody, you know, eventually critiques me, I can say, Oh, I covered that in a footnote. Uh, so yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and it's and more just before, citing your sources too. So that's, that's good. There you go. Yeah. Before, before Nick asks his, his next question, which I think is, is really, really relevant for this conversation. Yeah. You've already kind of dived into the, or dove into this. <clears throat> I'm wondering, um, I'm assuming there's a connection between your earlier book on the son's obedience and this book now on the Trinitarian dogmatics. Um, maybe speak a little bit into like how that debate on the sons, does he internally generate? Is he, does he eternally submit to the father in some sense? Um, how that relates to Trinitarian dogmatics of what you're writing now. Sure. Um, so there's definitely intellectual connections. Ironically though, the most direct connection is the publishing deal. Um, so I mean, I'm, I'm teaching at a, you know, middle of nowhere school. I love it. It's a great place to be, but yeah. it just doesn't have the name recognition. I'm a nobody. Nobody knows who I am. You know, I'm not headlining any pastors conferences or anything. So I was pitching books to publishers and getting rejection letters left and right. And I just happened to publish an article saying that this idea that the son internally submits to the father causes huge problems, mm -hmm. um, because it makes will a property of person and that destroys Christology. Um, and logically, the way we talk about the Trinity connects with the way we talk about Christology. And traditionally, we say that Jesus has two natures, one human, one divine, and he has two wills, one human and one divine, which is why he's able to be tempted, for example. Um, if he didn't have a human will, he couldn't be tempted. James tells us that God cannot be tempted. Um, so I published that in jets and like three months later, there's this 2016 internet debate on the eternal submission of the sun that mm -hmm. blows up. And next mm -hmm. thing you know, I'm a hot commodity I'm getting invited <laughs> to, you know, talk on different things. And so yeah. I'm, I'm able to get a book published on that and it's called the sun who learned obedience. Um, and I try and show how all of the different doctrines or I don't cover them all, but many uh, doctrines and systematic theology are interconnected. So not only does what you say about the Trinity, relate to what you say about Christology, it relates to what you say about the cross, because mm -hmm. the will of Christ is central to satisfaction and substitution theories of atonement. Mm -hmm. It relates to the doctrine of God, thinking more broadly about the divine attributes. Um, and in each of those areas, the idea that the son eternally submits to the father creates huge problems that maybe scripture doesn't directly address. Um, but the things that scripture does directly say we can't make sense of if we don't claim that will is proper to nature and not person, which destroys eternal submission. So I wrote that book. Um, and suddenly I have a book under my belt. People know who I am. I've, I've got a small social media following. Next thing you know, publishers are taking my calls again, so to speak. <laughs> um, so that's one big connection is, you know, I actually got the book deal because I was able to write on this other. Um, in some ways, this book is different that book i tried to really play to sort of the safe characters um you know stalwarts of historical theology anselm and um you know Turretin and calvin and you know people that generally christians are going to respect um and i'm covering a wide range of top topics mm -hmm. um especially with biblical uh and historical theology uh this book i still draw on those figures but 
I'm having, I guess, a little more fun bringing in a lot of the characters that I enjoy reading that maybe aren't widely known. And so appealing to them isn't going to carry much weight in a polemical context, but I wish it would because these are godly people. They're wise people. I think they're reading the Bible well. Um, and that's really what I think contemporary and historical theology does for us is it helps us read the Bible better because the Bible is ultimately the authority here. But each generation, each culture, you know, each group is going to view it from a slightly different perspective. So I'm really expanding the horizon a whole lot. Um, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not talking a whole lot about that debate on the eternal submission of the sun. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of my interlocutors, I feel like, didn't substantively engage my arguments. And um, some of them misrepresented me. And so I thought, you know, I, I tried. Um, it is helping a lot of people, but I don't want to be like that guy that does that debate. So let me just do the Trinity, something that will <laughs> edify the church more broadly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I guess that's kind of how they're related. But the the contract itself is probably the most direct connection there. Mm. Without that first book, the second one never would have been possible. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. Both of them were a joy to, re to write. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I had actually I had heard of the of your previous book in relation to the debate, um, which is I had heard I I didn't I hadn't heard your name necessarily, but I heard the title of the book, and when I saw your name, I was like, I remember this book from <laughs> a little yep. while ago because I remember the debate um, that was happening, and then your book that came out. So yeah, it's good yeah. to see that you've you've written again and um, are helping the church again. Mm -hmm. I do think this will be a bit more accessible too. Um, so my mom picked up the last book and. You know, she said she got like three pages in, had no idea what was going on. You know, she's tried a couple of times, fine by me. And it's very technical. This one I write with, uh, I guess, a less technically trained audience in mind. Okay. Hey, all this podcast and this episode is brought to you by our main sponsor at Logos Bible Software. According to a recent survey, 30% of evangelical churchgoers want more in-depth teaching. So if you are among those who want to go deeper into the word, Logos is the Bible study platform for you. Logos also fuses some of the most powerful technology available with biblical resources. You can access all sorts of commentaries, Bibles, up-to-dates, seminary-level courses, and even audiobooks right on your phone, tablet, or desktop. has original language resources, which I, Peter, use on a very consistent basis. So it has a great resource on Septuagint, Septuagint resources, the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew, and a lot of Greek New Testament work as well. So if you guys are interested in that stuff as well, you guys can head over to logos.com slash guilt grace, because with us, Logos is now more affordable than ever. You can get started at just $49. So head on over, find yourself a package and join us with Logos Bible Software. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell. Are you or someone you know looking for a Reformed Church in Orange County or the Orange County area? We've got a growing core group, Santa Ana Reform, meeting Sunday afternoons. We'd love to have you join us as we work towards starting official worship services beginning in summer of 2022. If you or someone else you know like to be part of a Reformed Church from the ground up, Hear the gospel preached from all of scripture every week and enjoy sweet fellowship. Contact us at sandaandreformed at gmail.com or look in the show notes. I hope to meet you soon. Hey guys, a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Reformation Heritage Books. We've partnered with them and they've partnered with us to try to push a couple of their uh, published books. One of them is the 10 volume series 
of William Perkins, who a 16th and 17th century reformed writer, wrote commentaries on Galatians, Revelation, uh, wrote The Golden Chain of Salvation, some incredibly influential works in reformed theology. Also, the Family Worship Study Guide, which gives you quick little snippets, about a paragraph each of all 66 books of the Bible, each chapter in those books. So it's really good for family worship. And also they have basically every major publisher uh, in the world. They sell their books at cheaper than Amazon uh, sells them. So if you guys go to heritagebooks.org, drop a line that Guilt, Grace, Gratitude sent you and purchase their books. We'd be grateful and you're supporting a great cause. Yeah, and RHB Books is the largest confessionally reformed publisher in the world. And they publish historical and modern works on a consistent basis. So you can find them on Twitter at RHB underscore books and on Instagram, Reformation Heritage Books. Yep. So go on over there, get these books. There's so much good stuff coming out and hopefully this is good. Yeah. And what you're saying earlier brings up this question quite well. So Today, especially today and recently, there is a fear of reading and interacting with Catholic and Orthodox thinkers. And I know you, with your eclectic background, you're explaining too, you do dive into them. You dive into them and you mine the riches of classical theistic uh, tradition and you pull the parts of uh, ecumenically across the scope um, of, of these doctrines to fill in uh, the explanation of Trinity dogmatics. So why is this interaction so important when you're constructing or reconstructing our Trinitarian dogmatic? That's a great question. Um, So I'll start with a little personal narrative and then more abstractly. Um, So I finished up my undergrad at University of North Carolina, and I have aspirations of teaching, hopefully in a context with diverse viewpoints. You know, I'd seen what what I felt like one-handed presentations had been like in the classroom. Um, and I'd seen even-handed presentations, both in the religion department at University of North Carolina, you know, and other departments as well. And I wanted to be in a context where I could present things in a balanced way to a broad perspective of students. And I do believe the truth will win out. I do believe Christianity is true. So if you just present different mm-hmm. viewpoints, I think it's a great opportunity. And so I shared that with a couple of really conservative seminaries and said, that's my goal is to teach in this sort of context. Mm. And they said, don't go here. Um, (laughs) You are going to be cornered into going to a very conservative Christian school to teach. And that's just not generally the student body. So you want to go to a a more mainline seminary, Catholic school, something like that. So my master's degree and my doctoral degree were, I went to a Methodist seminary where my favorite professor was Eastern Orthodox, where Mm. my main mentor in an internship was a Lutheran pastor while I was attending a Presbyterian church. Yeah. I took two years off because I burned out because um, everybody, <laughs> you know, my churches were like, you know, oh, are you a Christian anymore? You're going to this liberal school. And I was like, huh. yeah, there are all kinds of Christians there. And, you know, my <laughs> school was like, oh, those evangelicals, they're the problem with everything. And I'm like, hello, I'm sitting right here. Um, so it created this existential <laughs> crisis for me. But yeah. through that, God gradually opened my eyes to see that he was working in a wide range of people um, and that a wide range of people had it wrong in different areas and were sinning in different areas. And so I continued my journey, you know, Catholic school, continuing to learn from different groups. And I do have substantive disagreements with Catholicism. 
um, with Eastern Orthodoxy, with, you know, Methodism. You know, honestly, I'm, uh, I'm a Reformed Baptist, not Presbyterian. So in terms of baptism, I have concerns with the Reformed. And that's part of the reality of just being a Christian in the 21st century is mm-hmm. we have contact with all these different Christian groups. But when writing on the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm just trying to draw on the people that I think have understood God most clearly. Um, and sometimes that's an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Sometimes it's a Methodist theologian. Sometimes it's, you know, a theologian that doesn't fall in any categories that we easily have today. Um, so I draw on who I think is presenting the truth. And if we're really seeking truth and seeking to understand God, then I don't think it's wise to categorically rule someone out just because they don't agree with me in another doctrinal area. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what type of church you go to, um, but I do think across the Christian tradition, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the places that a wide range of Christians have agreed on um, for good reason. And I do think you know, that's one of the most important aspects of the faith is who is the God that we worship? Who is the God that saved us? who created us and who will one day come to recreate the world for us. Um, And largely we agree on the broad contours there. So we can Mm. have a degree of fellowship because of that. Mm. Um, Some might not like that, but I've found that my faith has been deeply enriched by it. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe to push in that a little bit further to what, so if we're, if we're not kind of the end of next question, um, if we're not engaging with some of these ecumenical fellows who we may not see eye to eye on some things. We may, we may have very serious disagreements on some things. We do agree on this, uh, on the like kind of broad scope of, of the Trinity. What happens if we kind of like stay siloed in our own like little quote unquote tribe and says, I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to interact with this. Like I just, I have, I have me and what I'm doing right here. And I'm going to, I'm going to compose my own, my own doctrine of the Trinity. What, what happens, what happens if we don't kind of take the larger kind of ecumenical scape in picture? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are lots of potential problems there. Um, So for one, we run the risk of bearing false witness of caricature. Um, And this happens from all kinds of groups. You know, I could point to Eastern Orthodox theologians who say, oh, this is how Catholics are. And then if you read Catholic theology, you say, no, that's not really right. Um, Catholic theologians that say, oh, this is how the Protestants are. And you read Protestant theology and say, well, no, um, and so forth and so on. So, you know, even if at the end of the day, you decide you disagree with the Catholic approach to the Trinity, if you haven't read it in great detail Mm -hmm. in multiple primary source figures and secondary source analysis, odds are what you think you're disagreeing with isn't actually a very good representation of what Catholics believe. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one risk. But number two, I do think, um, you know, God has given spiritual gifts to each member of the church, to each part of the body. And I think there's a very real sense in which that applies to individuals. So each of us no doubt have spiritual gifts, but I think there's another way that can play out in larger groups. So different cultures and different time periods and different denominations might see something clearly that we've lost or we've forgotten. So there's been a a tendency in the probably sixties through nineties, especially and a little bit into the two thousands for, you know, conservative evangelicals to doubt the idea of eternal generation Um, So if you're trying to understand what this idea is, even among the best evangelical defenses of it, I don't think those are the best treatments of this idea. But if you're also reading, you know, Catholic theology and Reformation area, Reformed theology and Eastern Orthodox theology, you can get a much clearer sense of this really important idea, which will clarify your thought. Mm -hmm. So 
two of many possible problems if we should read it to make sure that we're speaking truthfully. Um, and part of that speaking truthfully is as we read it, there's probably going to be some truth there that we didn't know mm. that helps us understand scripture and God in a better way. Mm. That's good. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's kind of a sub curveball question here based on that. Um, hopefully it's not too controversial. So take a pause <laughs> if you want to, uh, can, can you, can you be a true Christian without believing that God is triune between the father, son, and the spirit? That is a big one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say I distinguish. <laughs> um, so I would distinguish between those who may not be able to articulate a clear doctrine of the Trinity and those who might reject it. Um, so, you know, there might be someone who, you know, functionally the way they describe it is their modalist. You know, if you say, what does it mean to say Jesus is God? They say, oh, he is, you know, the father in a different form for us in creation. Like, you know, that actually raises a, a lot of big problems if you believe that and kind of logically work through the implications of that i don't think it fits with scripture i don't think it fits with the way we worship lots of problems there it it can cause problems for salvation um but that person may not have thought through any of that and their intent is to trust and believe in jesus who in the way that they can they're trying to identify with god and i would say um you know that wouldn't necessarily result in condemnation though. Thankfully for all of us, I am not the final judge. <laughs> yeah. um, on the other hand, if you have someone who maybe has been presented with the truth, understands the truth and is clearly arguing, you know, there is no difference between father and son. Um, there, there are not distinct persons uh, or that the son, you know, that Jesus Christ is not fully God or is just a human. Um, that's where I start to, worry that you know salvation is at stake it would seem necessary to believe that jesus is god if you know our call is to confess that jesus is lord and we will be saved as it's put in romans well that lordship seems to include you know the lord is sort of short for the divine name um is kind of how i take it it includes that authority and majesty and ability to be worshipped and dominion and everything else um which it seems like you're not confessing if you reject him and say, he's, oh, he's just a good moral teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but even there, that gets pretty complicated because then you run into things like, you know, Judaism with, you know, the, um, you know, the covenants. Um, and I think I'm just going to go ahead and just name that that's a further complication that I didn't prepare for prior to this podcast. <laughs> and if y'all want to pick up there. Uh, I told you, you I told you I'd throw a curveball. <laughs> no, that's, that's, <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, I, I like that answer. Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, the, obviously the Trinity is really hard to understand and define, but we know systematically it is present as a structure to the Bible, like the bones of the Bible, but it is hard to, it is hard to define. And I think there's some grace there, obviously. Um, we don't all need to be a theologian and define it profoundly and perfectly to enter heaven. But I think you're saying there's an element of God knowing the heart of the believer knowing that we truly believe that the father, son, and spirit are a tri trinit triune. Um, and, you know, however we can under explain that um, he knows our hearts. So I think that you're explaining like the grace is there for sure. 
So, um, and just not denying it all altogether and saying, absolutely not. There's, there's no way. Um, and still trying to claim to be Christian. Yeah. And we're dealing with an infinite God here. Um, we're all finite minds. So, um, yeah, I'm a little excited to learn the truth and a little dreading this moment, but, um, you know, I just imagine one day, you know, being sat down and, you know, let's talk about page 75 or let's talk about chapter nine and, you know, <laughs> God setting me straight. Like you had no idea what you were talking about. Why did you even <laughs> open your mouth here in front of my holiness? Um, so I'm sure that I have mistakes. And so I, I have to hope that there's grace, grace for me in that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good, good. Um, so why do you think these the, these creedally, confessionally, and historically understood doctrines of the Trinity have fallen fallen out of um, favor. So, is there a way that you're seeking to kind of bring bring this back up for your readers? Yeah. Um, so I think I've covered this already in some ways in terms of the direction of scholarship a bit. But I guess a few things I'd add, maybe why they've fallen out of favor. Um, partly, I suspect it might be you know, an awareness of how culture is non-Christian. Um, and I'm always skeptical anytime anyone would say, our, you know, we have a Christian culture. Um, obviously, there were a lot of terrible things happening in, you know, the heyday of Christendom that I would say are not Christian at all. But I don't think people were necessarily as aware of it then. And, you know, Christians, I think, generally are aware of, you know, things aren't going the way that God would have them go. And um, we could talk a million things there. Um, but as you become more aware of that, I think there is a good impulse to be more evangelistic and to be more active in social causes and, you know, to focus on missions. These are all wonderful things. Um, but as you can imagine, as you know, you know, you bring somebody new to your church plant and you're talking about a sermon on consubstantiality, the way that John Christostom might have uh, in the four or three hundreds. And, they might just turn around and walk out. They might not. That that plays very well with some people and others it doesn't. Yeah, and they so, will turn around and say, I have no yeah. idea what you're talking about. I'm going to go to this other church. Count me out. Um, so, you know, I think that impulse might lead to us focusing in other areas that are important. They are good, um, but they do hurt a little bit. Um, and I think combined with that, Christianity is very varied. Um, but in many corners there seems to be sort of a decline in liturgy. Mm. And even if your preaching content is not dogmatic necessarily, you know, those sort of reified forms of worship already included Trinitarian components that I think would help your average Christian to have some sense, you know, mm. if nothing else, the corporate confession of the Nicene Creed. Yep. Um, I have rarely attended a church that does that. Mm -hmm. Thankfully I do now. Um, but that loss of liturgy, that loss of public confession also leads to a loss of Trinitarian knowledge. Mm. Um, and so just broadly on the church, I think a good thing. And then, you know, you can weigh in, you know, listener and your own views of the loss of liturgy. Mm. Um, but both of those things, I think, have weakened the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. Um, and I guess the last one would be a shift in biblical studies with mm. the rise of historical criticism you know, what did the historical author mean in the historical context? It tends to de-emphasize what did the divine author mean yeah. for the church to uncover through history. Um, and that latter sense tends to be where many of the insights in Trinitarianism come from. And the former sense tends to deny the possibility that any first century author could even consider something like the Trinity. Um, so put those together in addition with 
some of the strains of theology in the 20th century. And it's kind of a, not a great context for fruitful Trinitarianism to develop in some ways. Hmm. But fortunately, I think we are seeing a resurgence here. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, that's yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, because it's, yeah, I think it's fortunately, unfortunately, your, your book will do better now because of some of the de- debates that are going around. Um, around the Trinity, which you want your book to do well, but you don't want it to do well because there's all this heresy or there's this improper <laughs> thought on the Trinity. You want to do right. well, you want to read it, not because it's like, oh, this is this is not what people want to do. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's this amongst like what Nick was saying, like you were saying, there's there's this kind of resurgence, uh, and then having this uh, book as a as a as a as a way for thinking Christians. Um, to dive into it and learn some of this language, learn some of the history, learn some of the exegesis, the theology, <clears throat> see how all these interact with each other. Like you said, in the, in the way that you did it, um, where you go logically through the steps versus chronologically, which I think are some pretty unique areas um, of this of this book. So um, before, before I ask my last question, I don't know, Dr. Butner, if there's anything else that you wanted to add about your book or, or Nick, if there's any other questions, anything that you feel like, hey, I, I really want listeners or readers to get to get this specific thing from the book or uh, I really wanted to talk about this specifically um I guess I can go first and then Nick if you have any questions I'm happy to to talk um I guess the one thing that I would hope you know even a listener now who's never going to pick up the book um and maybe I, I fail at this in the book but my goal is I've known so many people that say well the trinity is just something I can't understand you know god is complicated and of course, there's a sense in which that's true. And so we have a place for apophatic theology where we specify this isn't true of God, but we can't necessarily name what is true. We just know this is not true. And even that is a helpful form of knowing. Um, but it, I'm trying to order the book so that logically it can be understood. Um, and it's not written for middle schoolers. You know, it's it's written for people with some background in theology, ideally seminarians. But I think, you know, I, I think it will play well also to the academy more more broadly. And I think it'll play to people who haven't been to seminary if they have some theological background. Um, mm-hmm. But I would hope that, you know, someone listening to this podcast won't say, oh, it's another book on the Trinity. I'm not even going to try because it's challenging. You know, fine, don't try my book. But I do think we can have a degree more understanding of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit from where we are now. And that goes for me too. I have more to learn. Um, and so I would hope that, you know, this book will serve some people to know God more fully and then to be able to respond in clearer worship as a result. And so if you're listening, I hope you'll pick up my book, you'll pick up somebody else's book, but that you won't just give up on understanding God more completely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah that's good. I, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if this is covered in the book, but it's definitely on topic. Um, based on just kind of building up our armor of apologetics, talking to people on the streets and whatnot. And Trinity is a foundational doctrine we know that um but like you said so many people have a hard time understanding we have a hard time kind of um explaining it sometimes um and that's i think i think the opposing argument or question usually that throws people off sometimes would be well jesus never claimed to be part of the trinity or the disciples never explained it that way um this was a post-biblical uh, early church father kind of assumption, but it was never really clearly defined by Jesus himself um, and that kind of thing. So is there actually, 
maybe even just one example biblically, even even if it's a specific verse that you can pull from, just like, hey, here's a good starting point. This is where Jesus spoke about it. This is where the disciples spoke about it. Yeah. Um, So I cover so many different approaches to scripture Mm. in the book. Um, I think this is a doctrine that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you your answer. I'm just going to, I've got to do my academic footnotes first Um, on a podcast. (laughs) I have to say them rather than put them where nobody's going to read them. Um, So um, there, you know, there's, I think a cumulative case for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, there's not like a one silver bullet verse that if you pick up a bunch of commentaries, you can't find somebody making objections to. But I think the linchpin for the way that I think about the Trinity, sort of the, the central point uh, comes in John chapter five. So Jesus has healed somebody on the Sabbath um, and people are upset. He shouldn't have done a miracle on the Sabbath, which I think is already theologically problematic, but rather than correcting their theology of the Sabbath, Jesus says, my father is working and I'm working also. It's 517. And they get upset and they're going to stone him because he seems to be making himself equal to God. Um, Great chance for him to say, no, 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 you misunderstand. I'm not saying I'm equal to God. You just don't understand the Sabbath. That's not what he does. Instead, he doubles down starting in 519. And he says, basically, everything that the father does, I do. And I do nothing without the father. But anything he does, I do likewise. And so right there, you have... Um, the basis for what's known as the doctrine of inseparable operations. Mm. Uh, there's nothing the father does without the son. If, the, if that's really true, then God doesn't create without the son. Of course, John says that, John 1, mm. uh, everything is made through the word, uh, 1, 4, I think. Um, then the son, everything he does, he doesn't do without the father. So we don't have two deities where one does certain things and another does certain things, but they're doing everything together. Mm-hmm. But we also have personal distinction because the action is likewise. Um, what the son is doing, the father is doing. What the father is doing, the son is doing likewise. So there's still two-ness there. And then later on in John, he introduces another paraclete, another helper, the Holy Spirit, that seems to be incorporated into this shared action. Um, well, philosophically, in a Greco-Roman context, the argument was a thing's nature includes certain powers that determine what it does. So there are certain powers or abilities of you know different elements or atoms even that make them carbon instead of you know nitrogen, um, certain characteristics of them. Mm. Um, and so if everything that the father does, the son does, they must have the same nature and therefore be one. Um, and it's not just a philosophical argument. I argue in the book there's a certain biblical sensibility to that mm. because throughout scripture, you see if you want to know what someone is, look at their fruit. Um, you know, we know what somebody is by what they do, not by what they say, you know, the parable of the person who says, oh yes, I'm going to go do what you've asked me to do. And they don't obey the person that says, no, I'm not going to do it. And then they do obey. And which one is the holy one? What's the one that actually did it? Um, so we know our actions by what is done. Even the divine name you might interpret in Exodus three is I will be who I will be. You'll know me based on what I will do. Um, or God identifying himself with the covenants, what he's done. Um, so if that's sort of a biblical sensibility, if it's philosophically coherent that we can know God based on what he does. And we know if something is divine, if it does divine things, when Jesus says, I do everything the father does and the father doesn't do anything without me, that seems to be in my mind, a pretty clear claim to divinity. And John at least presents it in his text that the audience thought that's what Jesus was claiming. They wanted to stone him. 
Hmm. Um, so that is where I like to focus on. I don't start there. That doesn't come until chapter seven, but I think it kind of brings everything in together before I pivot to my spirituality in the Trinity chapter. Dang, that's good. That's good. I threw that curveball and you hit a grand slam. That was, that was <laughs> awesome. That was, that was what I was hoping for. And I knew you'd deliver. And I think okay. you mentioned too, like uh, John eight fifty eight, where Jesus said uh, before Abraham, I am. And he's saying, mm-hmm. I am. And that's how God spoke of himself in the old Testament is I am. So mm-hmm. I just, I just love that. Yeah. You pulled out John right there. It's funny. Um, not funny. Coincidental. Last week we had a conversation with Bobby Jameson and uh, Tyler Whitman, and they yeah. used that exact same reference yeah. for uh, <laughs> at the end, kind of pulling all the doctrine, um, the biblical reasoning book. Um, okay. Those who are listening, this comes out middle, late July. We had this conversation a month ago, but in real time, we had it last week. So like our timeline. <laughs> um, like but yeah, they, used the time they, they said the same exact, or Bobby said the same exact thing. And Tyler basically said the same exact thing um, using John okay. five. So it's John five yeah. company. Well, there you go. So <laughs> do you yeah, guys, nice, do you guys nice know each other? Do you guys know each other? Do you know Bobby Jameson? A, a bit. Yeah. Oh, huh. Not Bobby as much as Tyler. Okay, um, okay. I've interacted with Bobby a couple of times through Twitter. I don't know if that counts as knowing. I would say <laughs> not really. Um, yeah. I've met Tyler in person uh, at a conference and then emailed him a couple of times. So cool. yeah. uh, they seem like great people. I'd, I'd like oh, to yeah. get to know them, but yeah. Um, yeah. You better not that they agree with you. Yeah. Better they agree <laughs> with me or, or worse now that they stole my thunder, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. As, as we, as we end this, you have, <coughs> we talked about your other work, the son who learned obedience. Uh, but where, where else can you point for your listeners, for your work, where can they find you? Um, social media, whatever presence, sure. anything you may have um, that you're working on that you want people to know. Yeah. So I guess social media, it's at Glenn Butner, uh, G-L-E-N-N-B-U-T-N-E-R. Usually if I get something published, I throw it up there. I put up quotes from whatever I'm reading and occasionally mm-hmm. weigh on in some debate or other. Mm-hmm. Um, the Son Who Learned Obedience is available a lot of places, ebook uh, paperback. It's actually probably a bit harder than Trinitarian Dogmatics. So I might read the new one and then the old one, unless you're really interested in that debate about the eternal submission of the sun. Um, in March, I pivot to my social ethics side. I've got a book coming out with Fortress called Jesus the Refugee, which looks at sort of a thought experiment. What would happen if the Holy Family in Matthew 2, when they you know fled to Egypt, what would happen if they went through the modern refugee uh, system? And so sort of a teaching mechanism to go through sort of the legal aspects and ethical aspects of refugee immigration law. Um, So, and I guess beyond that, academia.edu, I have a profile where I post a number of my scholarly articles. I don't know that if you're not into dry journal articles that you benefit much from going there, but I I do have a lot more on the Trinity there. Um, Arguments for uh, Athanasius being a good biblical interpreter and, you know, defending the Trinity, for example. So mm-hmm. probably some of the places you could encounter my work currently or in the future. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on and hopefully we can, we can uh, keep this conversation going and, and talk to you again in the future. Maybe when yeah, your book comes out with Fortress and then, yeah, we'll keep this relationship going, but thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about your book and I hope you have a, well, I mean, it's what 9 PM over there. So a good night and probably close to sleep and enjoy your, your place in uh, North Carolina. Well, thanks. It was great meeting you all. And thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been fun talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.
Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a, a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and, and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you want to do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.